You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. How are we today? Good. We're halfway through, guys. It's Wednesday. So this is like, after this day, it's going to go so fast. Yeah. But. Yep, it is. Where's the camels? Um, <laughs> so what, uh, what have you all learned so far? What are you hearing? What are you getting from our times together? What book have we been covering? Leviticus. Okay, good. At least you all know that. <laughs> That's a start. Yes. He wants everything to be sacred because that's who he is. And so when, when you flirt with the secular, it diminishes what God is offering. And so, yeah, I, I really, um, it's a constant, you know, like, I think tug of war, especially um, it, if it was for the Israelites, I mean, just imagine for us now. Um, they didn't have internet or, you know, <laughs> social media, all that stuff. I'm like, um, they had their own struggles, but still, like, there's so many opportunities. And the enemy will always give us opportunities to veer from the sacred and go into the secular. And so, we, it's so important to always be aware of, um, of what the Lord offers, but what the world is like 
I guess, tantalizing you with. So. Somebody else? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I know those are words that we throw around a lot, and I'm always like, okay, but what does it really mean? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Can you crawl next time? <laughs> really joking. <laughs> okay, somebody else. <laughs> Yeah, Maya. Um, how Jesus was redefining the way that law was interpreted. And so by a deeper meaning, I love mm. how what you just explained because we look at the Old Testament law and we wonder how we can even put it into today, um, modernly. But then when Jesus came and said that I come to fulfill the law, I get rid of it, mm-hmm. it also like it always made me wonder on like all the Old Testament to it, but some of the Old Testament is not applicable mm-hmm. to today. And then how we define the interpretation of it. Because it really is true how when we progress and time progresses and when civilization progresses, interpretation is it's changed all the time because they definitely have like the technology to do mm-hmm. of um, means of medicine, uh, transportation, Those principles still hold true, no matter if, like, you can't necessarily, you know, put the letter to the law, you know, of whatever law you pick out, but you can still live the principles out. And, and that's the beauty of the Bible, is these biblical principles hold true through the test of time. And that's why when you are looking at... Um, doing the inductive Bible study and you're pulling out those biblical principles, it's because those things are what stand true throughout every generation, throughout every um, people group, no matter what. Those are the things that we are going to live by. And so those biblical principles, when we can grasp those from the law, but then also the other reading, man, how important it is to then know that we are living biblically. And not just, well, I think this is the right thing to do. Let me try this today. But you can go to the Word of God and be like, oh, okay, this is where I can back it up. So then when people ask you, why are you living the way you're living? You can be like, well, you know, when I was studying the Word of God, I pulled out this principle and now I'm tethering my life to it. And how, like, I think seed planting that could be for people. So that's why these biblical principles are so important and why um, I really am appreciative that they are a part of the school because it makes the Word of God livable. You actually know how to live it out and walk it out in a more um, tangible way. So, yeah. Somebody else?
Jesus is more superior than all the other ones. So thank goodness that we have the new covenant. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Well, so today we are going to be going through, uh, talking a little bit more about the tabernacle and breaking it down. Then I want to cover the seven festivals that they celebrate. And then we're going to finally finish up Leviticus. You're probably like, are we ever going to get done with this book? <laughs> well, today is the day. <laughs> and then we're going to move on to scratching the surface of numbers, and then we'll be finished for the day. Okay? So let's get into the tabernacle. I really like this picture just because... Um, you know, when reading it, you can sometimes be like, okay, I somewhat understand. But then when you actually see it and you see the, uh, the tribes, how they're uh, sitting around it and how it's in the middle and the fire's blazing forth from it, it just brings a whole new, I guess, understanding to this book and this, just what the tabernacle is all about. Okay. Let me. <laughs> you remember all of the yep. slides. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it kicked it off for some reason, and then I thought it was still. Okay. So there you go. Now you have the visual. How's about, how about that? <laughs> Do you like that one? <laughs> okay. And so you see the smoke coming up. You see... Um, just how the tribes are around it. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, just the placement of everything. So if we are looking at this is this is the entrance to the tabernacle right here. Make a really great arrow if I can, not really, but that's okay. Um, so this is the gate is the first thing. And then you come into the altar of burnt offering, and then you have the lamb, and then the laver is where they, it's the, the wash basin where they would wash their hands and everything. And then you come into the holy place, so you walk in, and there's the lampstand, the table of showbread, and then the altar of incense. And then from there, you go into the most holy place, and this is the only place that, the location that the only the high priest can go into. And so there is the Ark of the Mercy Seat or the Ark of the Covenant, and then the most, the most holy place, okay? So that's just a little bit of a looking upon the tabernacle. And then I wanted to just show you this diagram of, or chart, whatever you want to call it, of um, like the, the variables of the tabernacle, and even the camp and outside of the camp. So you have the places, and then you have the people, the rituals, the times, and the food. And so when you're in the very, like, the holiest of holies, then um, this is where only the high priest can go. The sacrifice is taken in there, 
And then it's only on the Day of Atonement that they go into the most holy place and the food is not eaten. And then you have the holy place, which was that portion when you first walked into the tabernacle. And the priest can go in there, so not just the high priest. The sacrifices um, can be eaten by the priest there, and they go into the holy place on festivals and Sabbaths. And so then the food can be eaten. Then you had the, the outside tabernacle court. And this is where the other Levites and the clean Israelites could walk around. And so the sacrifice that was there could be eaten by, you know, Levites. And this, they could have been there on common days. So it wasn't just during the festivals or on Sabbath. And then you have the camp, which is where the tribes are all allotted. Uh, the people, if you had minor impurities, then you would have to purify yourself and go outside of the camp for one day um, or sometimes until evening. And then if you were very unclean, then you would have to go outside of the camp. And this was for major impurities and for if you had come into contact with the dead. And you would have to go through a purification process for seven days. Okay? So that's sort of the, the steps that it takes to get from, you know, that unclean to clean to holy. What we talked about yesterday. Bless you. Okay, and so the tabernacle is where God lives among sinners. That's the whole point, you know, we talked about with even coming out from Exodus. Have Exodus 25. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. That is the whole purpose of the tabernacle. And now we know that Jesus is the true tent. He is the true tabernacle. And so we find that in Hebrews 8, it says, There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And then in John, it says, So the word became human and made its home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. There's those attributes again of who God is his unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And so this is always God's heart for him to be dwelling among us. And so now Jesus is that true representation of the tabernacle because we have the Holy Spirit. We have, you know, embodied within us and it is always he will never leave us, never forsake us. And so when we are looking at the tabernacle, I want to go through really the message of each section. So even starting at uh, the gate, I want to talk about what that means uh, and what God was really uh, communicating with each of these aspects of the tabernacle. And so with, uh, with the gate, it is God is providing a way for sinners. This is him making a way for them to be holy, to be cleansed, to be clean, and to be purified so that he, they can be in his presence again. And then we see that the altar of burnt offerings is where God saves sinners because this is where they take the burnt offering and they offer it completely on the altar, and that is what cleanses them from their sins. And then you have the, it's 
little bit hard to read this. It's really small on my screen. Um, the lamb, which is God's son, takes the place of sinners. And so you have the lamb here that is taking the place of what we should be, what the Israelites should be um, going through, that the lamb is what is taking their place. And then you have the laver where it is God cleansing sinners. It's that area where they're having to wash their hands, but it's bringing cleansing over them. And then the table of showbread, this is where they you would put the bread out. Um, this is where God fellowships with sinners. He wants to be in communion with us. He wanted to be in communion with the Israelites. And so this was a way to draw them in. And so this table of showbread is like the, the banqueting table that I, I had at the beginning. It's like that feast that he's wanting to bring in and fellowship and um, just show his kindness and his goodness. And then we have the lampstand. And this is God gives light to sinners. It's this beacon of hope that there is more to um, life than what they are living. That there is, uh, there's hope, there's light, there's, there's life to be had when they come into the presence of the Lord. And then the altar of incense, you know, it talked about how there was a sweet aroma that would go up uh, when they would burn the incense. And so this was God hearing the sinners. He was hearing their petitions. He was hearing their prayers. He was hearing uh, them, their repentance and them coming before the Lord. And then we see the veil, which is God separates from sinners because we know that he is holy and he can't, um, you can't come into contact with holiness unless you are clean and holy. And so this is that part where in between the holy place and the most holy place. But then the high priest is, the, is really God's son intercedes for sinners. He is the one who is constantly making um, intercession on our behalf to call us back into right relationship with the Lord. And then the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Mercy Seat, is where God reigns over and forgives sinners. And I really like this picture because if you know what, um, if you remember yesterday from the video where you saw the Ark of the Covenant with uh, the, the cherubim, I think is what it is, over it, or seraphim, I can't remember, um, <laughs> one of those, um, that it's over that. But that is where God is seated. And what is in the Ark of the Covenant? Do you all know what's in it? The Ten Commandments. What? The staff. Uh-huh. Something else. The manna. Yes. Yeah, but the main thing about that is that God, if you think about it, him sitting on the mercy seat, he is sitting in between the law and the sinner, and he is the one that is judging he is the one that is bringing back into right relationship. And so I love that he is the one that's reigning over those Ten Commandments. And he is the one that forgives when there's um, trespasses against those things that he set before. Okay, and so with this, we see that all of these 
that with the laws, the rituals, and the sacrifices, they were all a shadow or a type. And what that means is there was greater things to come. And so with this, with the tabernacle, this is all points to the good things that the Lord had in store. And it's a reminder of their sins, of the sins that they had committed against the Lord, but what they could do to become right with him again. And so with all of these things, it helps us to look forward to something because these sacrifices weren't, even though they were pure and they were to be unblemished, and, but they were still a shadow of what was to come because Jesus was going to be the perfect sacrifice. He was going to be the perfect high priest where even Aaron and the high priest after him had to make atonement for their own sins. Jesus never had to do that. And so the old points to the new. And I have just another, like, two columns of what was temporary is now permanent. And where Aaron was the high priest, Jesus is now the only high priest that we need. And the high priests were from the tribe of Levi, but now Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And what they did when they ministered on earth, now Jesus is ministering in heaven. He is bringing about um, his ways and his purposes. And so the blood that was used from animals, those that were to be pure and undefiled, now we use the blood of Christ. And so I'm, you can look through these again. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these, but just knowing that this system was always unto something else. I don't think, even though the Lord did set it up, I think it was always because he wanted to show that this, this system was never going to completely um, fulfill everything that he had. It was always pointing to something greater, and that is Jesus. And so when we are thinking about this, and it, it is a lot to take in because you're like, man, there are so many things that they had to do. And I, that's why I love the video from yesterday about the Day of Atonement because it, all of those steps that they had to go through to be made right with the Lord, what do we have to do? All we have to do is believe in Jesus, confess our sins, and believe that he is the sacrifice that we need. And come to him over and over again. And it's not that we only can have one day to do that. But we can come any day, any moment, and speak with the creator of the universe. Our father. And be redeemed and walk in fullness and wholeness again. Okay. Do you all have any questions about the tabernacle or what it means.
Your staff is always available. <laughs> uh, I, I am too for a period of time. <laughs> no, I am. So, okay. Well, now I want to get into the festivals. Yeah. So I did um, just some studying of this right before I came. And so just to refresh my memory and... Um, I really want to dig into this more because, yeah, these, fa these festivals just fascinate me. So, um, these, this chapter, especially chapter 23 and more, but, um, but 23 is the starting of the, the festivals. And this is our roadmap for, um, for these celebrations that will take place. And so there are seven holidays or festivals that they were to celebrate. And each of these feasts are specific. They are called by God, and it is a time to meet with the people and to really be in fellowship with Him. And so I want to look at, just for a moment, the time period or duration, if you want to say, of each festival. So, um, and here is a lovely picture I got off of YouTube about um, <laughs> the seven feasts and when they take place. So you have them in, uh, let's do green. We have in the spring and in the fall. And so we have the four festivals in the spring that take place, and then you have the four festivals that take place in the fall. And so Passover is one day, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days. First fruits, one day. Pentecost, one day. Trumpets, one day. Day of Atonement, huh, one day. Because <laughs> it's not a days of atonement, it's day of atonement. And then tabernacles is seven days. But if you even think about that, I if you if you put yourself in the mindset of the original readers, the OR, what would this mean for them? I mean, can you imagine coming from this constant work mentality, always having to produce, always having to uh, exert all of your energy, all of your strength. And now you come and have not one, not two, but seven festivals where it is about celebration. It's about community, fellowship. And so I love that when we really break down these festivals, that I know even being in YOM, it's always, God, what do I do for you? What do, I, what do you want me to do? Like, just tell me and I'll do it. You know, it's always, well, what's your calling? What's, what's God calling you to do? And if you've been in YOM for any amount of time, you'll know that that is a, a focus and I'm not going to say it's a bad focus, but it's not the only thing that God delights in. He delights in our festivals and, and being in communion with Him. It's not just what we do for Him, but it's being with Him. And so these festivals show us that it is not just about doing 
but it is about being with him and celebrating and enjoying life. And so I love that we have this example and that he set this example even with right out of right out of the gate, if you want to say that, with the Israelites, because he was saying, it's not just about what you do for me, but it's about being with me. And they have this these numbers of days to do that. And so when we look at what the feasts are, the eating of food is not the primary purpose, even though that's a big part of it. But they were all times of rejoicing. And so this word feast, you know, it is a feast, a festival, or a sacrifice, or a time of deep sincerity. And so these were appointed times set by God. It wasn't just like they randomly were like, oh, well, let's on this day not work and have a celebration. But these were set by God for specific reasons. And they were to be observed to honor his name. So it wasn't just that they were having these festivals for um, no reason, but it was to honor him. And so the feasts were not to be celebrated by the priest only, but also by the whole community. This was a time where they would come together. And so it just is such a reminder that God loves to enjoy life. And I think that that's something that we need to think about when we are in the grind of work, that it's not always just about what we produce, but it is about that time with the Lord. That is so key. And these festivals and these feasts were to show that. But then also these feasts were memorials to historic events that had taken place within the nation of Israel. And then it was also prophecies about the coming Redeemer and his redemptive acts. And I've already talked about how the first four festivals took place in the spring and then the second three, or the, the last three took place in the fall. So we'll just keep on going. And really, these are all, all of the festivals are around agriculture. And I think that that is so smart of the Lord because he is using what they know to bring in this festival and these feasts. Because in, that, in their day, that was what their culture was all about, was agriculture. I mean, they were harvesting, they were planting crops. And so every time there was a harvest, there was this wonderful celebration that, got, that they got to partake in. And so I want to get into a little bit of each of them and, uh, and just break them down for you. So we have, I know that um, the Sabbath is the first one in your Bible, but I'm going to save that for the last. So I'm going to go ahead and go to Passover. And so Passover was the evening of the 14th day of Nisan or Abib in the Jewish calendar. And so that would have been in March or April. And so we know even this week is Holy Week. So we're going to celebrate Passover on Friday. The Palm Sunday was on last Sunday. And so Passover is on Friday. And then we have Easter on Sunday. So this was this would be their Passover time. So it would be, um, what is today? I'm like, the 13th. So, um, but in their calendar, it would have been the 14th day of Nisan. 
And so uh, this really, the purpose of this festival was to commemorate Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And it was to remember God. He protected their firstborn when he passed over their homes. And so we know, you read all of this in Exodus. And so these are, God is wanting to constantly remind them of what he's done for them, of what he's brought them through. And if we look at the New Testament fulfillment, so we know the purpose of why they originally were uh, celebrating these festivals, but then there's always that shadow or type of what, they, what it was looking unto. Even though they may have not seen it at that time, we can look back because we have time on our side and know that there was a greater understanding or a greater purpose to these festivals. And so we know that through Passover, that the New Testament fulfillment is that Christ is our Passover lamb. And this was the foundation for the Lord's Supper. And that also it is the shadow of the marriage supper of the lamb. And so I have all of these lovely scriptures here to tell you that I'm being biblical and that I'm not teaching heresy. So you can look at those scriptures and... um, Yes. (laughs) Okay. And so really, uh, when we're talking about Passover, Leviticus, like I said, doesn't go into a lot of detail just because when they were coming out of slavery, really Exodus solidified this for them on what it was about. And so this was a memorial or a a permanent uh, ordinance that they were to partake in. And so Passover is a feast of salvation. It is the sacrificing of a lamb of substitution. And so on Friday, when you are thinking about Passover, um, think about it as the feast of salvation. And so in the past, the Jew, the Jews applied the blood of the lamb externally to the doorpost. You remember in Exodus where they had to place the blood over the doorpost? of their homes, but today we as Christians apply the blood uh, to our house, which is an internal, like we are the the house of the Holy Spirit. And so we internally uh, partake of the blood with communion. And this celebration was, once again, to commemorate the Exodus, but that was merely the shadow of the redemption that was to be provided later when Jesus came. But I just really like that it, that Passover is the feast of salvation. Okay, so now we move into the feast of unleavened bread. And so this would begin on the 15th day. So Passover was on the evening of the 14th. And so then you would move right into the feast of unleavened bread. And this would continue for one week. And this was to commemorate the hardships of Israel's hurried flight from Egypt. And so you know how fast they left Egypt, that it was, you know, this back and forth with Pharaoh and Moses of let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, okay. And then he changes his mind and then they have to stay a little bit longer. And so it's this back and forth. And so we know that when they left, it was in a hurry. And they, you know, well, the Egyptians were like pretty much throwing stuff at them, like get out, just go, because of the death of the firstborn. And so the absence of leaven in their bread uh, symbolizes the complete consecration and devotion to God. 
And we know that that is a huge part of this feast and festival is not having the leaven in the bread. And if we look at the New Testament fulfillment, the unleavened bread is a type of Christ. And it's also the type of the true church. Because, and I'm going to, I'll talk about this, but really the leaven and the use of that, um, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Uh, let me go back here for a moment. Okay, I'm just going to follow my PowerPoint because um, <laughs> I don't want to get too ahead of myself. But so they celebrated Passover and then immediately went into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so this was a week-long celebration. And the use of unleavened bread is important to the celebration of Passover because it is essential to understand the difference between leaven and unleaven. And so in the Old Testament, leaven could mean milk or egg or any other ingredient that caused a fermentation in the dough. And then so really when they were leaving, they had to hurry so fast that they weren't allowed to put any of those things in. So the dough didn't rise as much as it would if you had those things in it. So the Jews were required to remove, even after this, the Jews were required to remove all leaven from their homes prior to Passover. There's not to be any found in their home. And um, I went to a Seder mill um, when I lived in Kansas City, and there was a Jewish guy who is now Christian, but he talked about the elements, and he was like, yeah, the week before Passover, like every Jew is cleaning out their cabinets and they are still not having any leaven in their house when it hits Passover and into this week. And that is because this is both a spiritual and a physical cleansing for them. And so the term leaven in a broad sense is anything that makes a major change in a larger mass. And so when we think about that, in terms of sin. Spiritually, it means something that corrupts that which it is mixed with. And so if we think about the very first sin that took place, for us, we're like, man, she bit into an apple or fruit. But that first sin corrupted the entire universe. And so that one act brought in separation until there was the sacrifices and then Jesus. And so that's why it's so important for, um, especially in this festival, to think about leaven and how it multiplies quickly. And if you think of that in, sense, in, the, in the sense of sin, it can multiply very quickly if you do not get a handle on it. And so when we are, well, we'll say the Israelites, when the Israelites were going through this, this would have been a physical reminder of how sin can impact their lives. And so I really, not that I really like unleavened bread, but I like the symbolism of this because um, especially when you're baking, and you put yeast in there, like it bubbles and it, it rises after, after you start to add it with flour. And you see that it is activated and how it grows. And if you don't have the yeast in there, it doesn't do anything. But that is how sin works. 
if you have a little bit of it, it continues to grow and to feed, and it just continues on and on. And so if you do not renew your mind, if you do not attack sin and get it out of your life, what starts as something small will continue to snowball. I mean, do you really think that, what example do I want to use here? I'm like, um, somebody who, I don't know, I'm, okay, let's just take, for example, somebody who is a pedophile. And I, I don't really like this example, but it's the one that's coming to my mind. But like, do you really think a person just wakes up in that morning and they're like, you know what, I think I'm going to go look at some child porn today. Or I'm, you know, it doesn't start with this huge, like, gesture. It's always this small. I mean, it can start with the simple, not even simple, because lust is not simple, but like a simple thought. And it doesn't get stopped and how it continues to grow, and it builds. And so I've all, like, in trainings that I've done, it's always like sin is not something that you just go from A to Z on, but you start out with something really small, and you're like, okay, I got away with that. But then if you do that same thing the next day, the thrill of it doesn't mean as much. So you're like, oh, well, let me do a little bit more just to see what I can get away with. And so you move to step B. Well, then you keep on going to step C until finally you're at that place where it is a full-blown sin. I mean, you look at pastors who are fall from grace because they have been caught in adultery. They didn't just wake up one day and be like, I think I'm going to cheat on my wife and ruin my church. It doesn't happen like that. It could be as simple as, talking to their secretary every day, and then, hey, I had a fight with my wife. I'm really mad at her. Oh, really? I'm sorry to hear that. Well, let me, let's talk about it. Well, then there becomes that emotional attachment. And then, oh, well, let's just grab lunch. It'll be okay, just the two of us. No big deal. Well, yeah, it is a big deal because you're, you're slowly opening that door for the enemy to come in, and you're saying, it's okay. It's no big deal. I work with her. Like, we need to build a friendship. That is sin coming in. That is how it snowballs. This leaven is so important to renew your mind, to come and attack sin so that you are not allowing the enemy to derail what he had for you. Look at the Israelites. You will find that they get derailed. Don't let it happen in your own lives. Be quick. Even if it is something small, please be quick to come before the Lord in repentance. 
And not that if it's a big thing that he won't forgive you because he will. But at the same time, what have been the thoughts of those pastors who fell from grace? You're like, wow, what happened to them? That's, that's, real, that's real bad. You know, we don't, we might have a little bit of compassion for them, but it's like their church is ruined at that point. Their credibility, their testimony. And not forever because it can be redeemed, but the work it takes to redeem that. I don't think a pastor falls from grace and then the next day he's pastoring another mega church or, you know, any church. It doesn't happen like that. There's time for healing and for a restoration process, a sanctification process. God can do it instantly, but a lot of times it doesn't happen like that. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take sin by the roots and get it out of our lives, Lord. When you bring conviction, Lord, I pray that we would be quick, that we would be so quick to repent and turn so that we can live the fullness of who you have called us to be that we can reach those that you are putting in our lives to bring change. I pray that sin would not be the downfall, but that we would constantly have our eyes fixed on you and that we would be able to accomplish all that you have in store for us and grow in greater and greater depths and intimacy with you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. And this keeps kicking me off for some reason. <laughs> so we will just get on there again. Um, they are. Is it up there? Yes. Okay. Well, that was Holy Spirit, so we will keep going with first fruits. <laughs> Let's talk about this next festival. So the first fruits is on the day after Sabbath of the Passover week. So we are still coming through. We had Passover, then we had the unleavened bread, and now we have first fruits. And so this is on the Sabbath day. And this, the purpose is to dedicate or consecrate the first fruits of the barley harvest. And so once again, it's around agriculture. It's around their lives and what they know. God is using their, their life, what they are in daily to connect with them. And so the New Testament fulfillment is first fruits is a type of bodily resurrection of Christ. And the first fruits is a guarantee of the bodily resurrection of all believers. So that's something we have to look forward to. And then the first fruits is a type of consecration of the church. 
And so on this celebration day uh, of first fruits, the high priest, they would take a bundle of this young barley and they would sprinkle it with frankincense as a symbol of communion with God. And then they would lift it up and present it as a wave offering before the Lord. And this is in Leviticus chapter 23. And so Christ was and is the first fruits who was raised up above the ground and presented to the Father as a wave offering. And so the victory over sin then is celebrated at first fruits. So we know that Passover is the celebration of salvation. And so this is the victory over sin. Okay, and then we move to Pentecost. And so this is what they call the Feast of Weeks. And so this is 50 days after Passover. So we've had the whole week of celebration, and then they count off 50 days, and then they celebrate Pentecost. And the purpose of this is to celebrate the beginning of the wheat harvest, and it's to dedicate and consecrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And so once again, the things that they're dealing with constantly, agriculture with farming, these are what the Lord is working with to connect with them. The New Testament fulfillment is the birth of the church, which you will read about in Acts 2. Glorious, glorious. Can't wait for you all to get there. And then we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And so this takes place in the time period of Pentecost when you get to Acts. And so the Hebrew feast of Pentecost is also called the Feast of Shavuot. And that means weeks and refers to seven weeks occurring between first fruits and Pentecost. Okay, so we know that first fruits happened, then there's the 50 days, and then uh, Pentecost. And it is a time of celebrating the giving of the law. And so, you know, remember on Mount Sinai when Moses and all the Israelites were there, the law was given. And so this was a celebration time for them to recall, recall the law, to recall that time when they were on Mount Sinai, when they were right out of Egypt. And it is customary to eat only dairy foods during this time because the words of the Torah are compared to milk and honey on their tongue. And so this is such a, these remembrances, it was always to bring them back into right relationship with the Lord. It wasn't just that they came for a celebration and a festival and they were like, okay, that was great. But why? Why was there the celebration? And it was because, you know, when they were given the law, that was their livelihood, And so God wanted to recall that to their memory of what they had walked through so that they never forgot what he had done and who they were to him. And so when we're starting to make these connections, especially between the third festival and the fourth, so between the, I'm getting confused on my festivals, but um, between the first fruits and Pentecost, we see that the first fruits is called the day you bring in the omer or the sheaf. So we talked about how the barley was brought in together. They bundled it up. They've sprinkled the frankincense on it. And so at first fruits, they start to count the omers. They count the sheaves. 
And so what is really happening is after they passed through the Red Sea, the nation of Israel then counted off, they traveled for 47 days to reach Mount Sinai. And then they spent three days there. They, would, they were separating themselves. They were purifying themselves. And so this was the total travel time of 50 days from their resurrection, pretty much, where they walked through the Red Sea to getting to Pentecost. And so Pentecost in Greek is referring to the number 50. So you have 50 days. So number 50 is also the number of Jubilee. It's talked about deliverance. And it is the perfect consummation of time and grace. And so all of these things, it's not just that the Lord is like, okay, well, let's just do this for namesake. You know, it's not that. It's always that there's a purpose and a plan behind what he is doing. And this was to recall what they had walked through when they were coming out of the Red Sea. And really how he provided for them. I can't imagine, like, even thinking about leaving for a trip and not being prepared, I'm like, I can't imagine leaving the life that you knew completely and then just walking away and how that must have felt for them. So if you put yourself in their shoes, and I guess it makes me think of even like, in a sense, the Ukrainian people right now. I mean, they are leaving their homes with barely anything and they're going to places that they don't know. They don't really know where they're going to end up. And this is what the Israelites were going through. I mean, they had been promised this land, but they had no clue where they were going and what, how they were going to be provided for. And so all of this is to remind them of where God has brought them from and where they are now. And so if we summarize these first four feasts, so we've gone through Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost. Passover is the appointment for the death of the Messiah. So we know that first, or Passover was the death of the firstborn. And so this is the appointment for the death of the Messiah. And then the Unleavened Bread is the appointment for the burial of the Messiah. Because this is where he is wanting sin to die. He doesn't want anything to come into um, conflict with his relationship with them anymore. And then first fruits is the appointment of the resurrection of the Messiah. And then Pentecost is the empowering of the people by the Messiah. So these are the important words that you need to remember. The death, the burial, the resurrection, and the empowering of the people. That's what these feasts and these festivals are all about. Okay, we're going to move on to the last three. The three remaining feasts, our appointed times, all occur in the month of Tishra. Do you all remember Tishra from yesterday? Okay, Tishra is the seventh month, and this is the time of the latter rains. So when they would have, you know, you always have spring showers, bring me flowers, then this is the latter rains in the end, or the later part of the year. 
And so Tishra is the beginning of the seventh month of the year, which is to be the sabbatical month. So it's like the seventh day of the week when it was the Sabbath day. Well, Tishra is that to the year. It was always to be a Sabbath month for them. And so the first day of the month is celebrated as a Sabbath, and that's a day of rest. And it's a memorial of blowing trumpets, and really it's a holy, uh, a holy day, a holy convocation. And this begins on a, really the start of the fall feast. And so we start off with the day of trumpets. And so this verse, first day of the seventh month, the sabbatical year, or the sabbatical month, excuse me, would have been in between September and October. And the purpose is to usher in and consecrate this seventh month. So this was the beginning of this, these fall festivals. And then the New Testament, the blowing of the trumpets is associated with the return of the Lord. And I love that um, this blowing of the trumpet is so key for this day of trumpets. We'll find out more why. And so this first day starts the two-day feast of trumpets, and it, this is the only major festival that starts with a new moon. And really the command to observe the first uh, the Feast of Trumpets is in Leviticus, but then more specifics are given in Numbers 29. So you all can go and look at that specifically. But the, this Feast of Trumpets is a time for blowing the shofar. Do you all, have you all heard of a shofar? Okay, so it's this ram's horn that, I should have found like a, a YouTube video of it and played it, of a shofar. I'll look for one during break, see if I can find it. You have one? Why not? <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So you can blow the shofar in a... Yeah, at churches they blow it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't... I wasn't raised with a shofar horn, so when I, like, went to Kansas City, they... I think it was there. Maybe it was in Kona. I don't remember. Um, or maybe it was even coming into YWAM. I can't remember my first experience, but I was like... What are they doing? <laughs> and so it was such a, yeah, I now understand the importance of it. But at the time I was like, I don't get this at all. They're just blowing a horn. <laughs> but understanding the context and the importance of the shofar is really key. So um, so at this, this new moon, a watchman would sight the rise of the new moon. And this would, he would send out a signal and it would be relayed until it got to the temple. And then uh, the priest who was at the temple would then blow the shofar, and it would be heard in all the surrounding valleys. And this, as soon as the priest would blow the shofar, the faithful and the true believers would immediately stop what they were doing. They would stop their harvesting, and they would go to the temple for a New Year worship celebration. The symbolism in that, guys, can you imagine like the calling forth of the true believers that they would stop immediately what they were doing. And what comes to my mind is when, when they talk about, you know, when the Lord returns, how two will be working in the field and one will just go and the other will be there. This is what it is. Like they are in the field working and they hear the trumpet sound and then they just walk away. They just leave. And if, they, if the other people don't know what they're doing, then they're just left there. 
I mean, how incredible that this is something that the Lord already instituted in Leviticus. And that it is a festival for them to celebrate every year. So there's so much meaning behind these festivals that even now we need to like take hold of. And so this first day of Tishra is the New Year's Day. And so this is a day of initiation and renewal for the people. It's a day of reconciling oneself to God and your fellow man. So it's not just about your relationship with the Lord, but it's also about your relationship with God or with one another. This would have been a day of rededication and a recommitment to God and his ways. So this day of remembrance is a day for Israel to remember God, who he is and what he has done. I don't know about you, but I, I haven't really celebrated all the festivals. Like I've celebrated Passover and But really, to think about this, a day just to remember who God is and what he's done. Like, I want to tailor my life around this so that I'm constantly thinking about, bless you, who God is and the blessings that he has bestowed. I know that you can do this throughout every day, but to have a day set aside where that is what you do. I just, I love that thought. And in the video yesterday, they talked about Rosh Hashanah and the Feast of Trumpets is also called Rosh Hashanah. And so this is that day of judgment. And I know we've already talked about the Day of Atonement, so I'm not gonna like spend a whole lot of time on this, but it it does occur in the 10th day of the seventh month. So Rosh Hashanah and then 10 days later, you have the Day of Atonement. And so they already are starting, about, starting out thinking about, you know, that rededication, that recommitment to the Lord. They're already figuring that out in this day of trumpets. But then on the day of atonement is where it's really going to come into play. Because this is where that annual atonement for their sins of the priest and the people and the tabernacle take place. And so the New Testament fulfillment is that the day of atonement finds its ultimate fulfillment in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it really represents the redeeming work of Christ more adequately than any other Old Testament type. And so this is the most solemn and holiest of days. And this was a day that all Israel would mourn for their sin. It wasn't, this was the one day where they would fast. Uh, This was the only festival that they would fast in. Because this was a day to mourn what, and really to contemplate and think about their lives and how they had walked away from the Lord in certain times and how they were to rededicate and come back to Him. Because we know from talking about holiness and purity and sin that sin and failure brings death, it brings that separation from the Lord. And that was always what God was trying to combat was that disconnect with his people. And so for 24 hours, all Israel fasted. They did not work. 
They were, not supposed, they were supposed to spend time contemplating and confessing their sins. And so just even what I said yesterday about the silence that was in Israel on this day of atonement. It is a holy day unto the Lord. Because they would have been hopefully confronting the life that they had been living and be convicted of the wrongs that they had done and be willing to make atonement, to make it right. So that's why they were to forgo all, you know, food, work, anything that was of pleasure, they were to abstain from for those 24 hours so that they could come into right relationship and come into righteousness with the Lord. And so Yom Kippur, which is another name for the Day of Atonement, is the most sacred day and is followed by five days later, this major festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. So this Feast of Tabernacles is after the summer interval. So after, um, after summer is coming to an end. So in September or October. The people, the purpose of this uh, feast is to remind the people that they lived in shelters or in, this is also called the Festival of Booths. So they lived in shelters made of branches when they came out of um, the wilderness or out of Egypt, excuse me. And so this would remind them of how God provided for them during this time, how he protected them during this time. And the New Testament fulfillment is what we have as the church age, and that's what we're living in right now. And so the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot is also called the Feast of Booths, which I said. And this is the great harvest home or the season of rejoicing. And so on the 15th day of Tishra at the full moon, the feast begins and it lasts for seven days. And this would um, commemorate the end of the agricultural year. So this would have been them, you know, really harvesting everything and them getting ready for fall and winter. And this festival is the most joyous and happiest of times because this is a celebration of all that God has provided for them, all the crops, all the abundance that he has given. And really it shows, and they are to remember how he provided for them out of Egypt. And it will foreshadow his shelter and the world to come. And so we, when we consider these fall feasts and their significance, when we are looking at, you know, the first one that we talked about, the Feast of Trumpets, and it has, you know, come and gone, and with it, the 10 days of affliction of their soul. So those 10 days before the Day of Atonement, they are really to be thinking about what they had done, how they had wronged the Lord, and that they were going to make atonement for that. 
So the agony, the repentance, the sorrow for their sins that they had committed over that last year, this is what they were to be thinking about. And then Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, was passed also with its plea that God would pass over them, would pass over their sins. And then this re-consecration of their heart and their soul to God. And they would vow to live another year in obedience to him. And you remember the scapegoat that they talked about on the Day of Atonement, that in faith, that scapegoat would be the thing that removed their sins from the nation from that past year. And so out of this darkness, out of this sorrowful time, and out of their repentance would come this bright, joyous festival, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. The last thing that I'm going to talk about for these feasts are um, the day of Sabbath. And this was to be celebrated on the seventh day of the week. And the purpose for this is rest. It is to remember God who rested after his creation. And so the New Testament fulfillment is what we would consider spiritual rest. And so the word um, Shabbat or Sabbath comes from the root word meaning to desist, to cease, or rest. And so the celebration of Shabbat signifies they served the God of creation and that he is the one that is ruling and reigning over all. And so the time of Sabbath It was to rest and stop from working, but it was also to change their focus from the material things of this world to the spiritual matters of their heart, of what God had done for them throughout that week. And so this was one of the only, um, like, times in the celebrations that they, they weren't required to offer a sin offering but they would traditionally sing Psalm 92 on the Sabbath, and that is a Messianic psalm. And if we, Psalm 92, let me see if I can. I won't read it all, but it just, it starts out with saying, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High, It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening, accompanied by the ten-string harp and the melody of the lyre. You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing for joy because of what you have done. O Lord, what great works you do and how deep are your thoughts. Only a simpleton would not know and only a fool would not understand this. But you, O Lord, will be exalted forever. Your enemies, Lord, will surely perish. All evildoers will be scattered. And it ends with, they will declare, the Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in him. This would be something that they would sing and they would reflect on 
on this day of Sabbath. And we end these festivals with the, uh, in chapter 25, talking about the Sabbath year and then the year of Jubilee. And so the Sabbath year, if you think about the Sabbath day, was a day of rest. They weren't supposed to do anything. And so the Sabbath year, same concept, it was every seventh year, it was designated as a year of release. And this was for the land to rest. Just as people needed rest, God wanted the land to rest also. And so what they, to think about this is incredible. So what they planted in year six would last them year seven and year eight because the seventh year was the Sabbath year, so they wouldn't plant anything. And then year eight, they would still be eating off of what they harvested in year six. And then pretty much in year nine, they would begin to harvest again. So their, their harvest in that year six was to last them. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You gonna say something? I'm like an operations guy. I'm like imagine that the practical reality of every fifty years you're putting land to people like how does that mm-hmm. work? Yeah. Well <laughs> like, I can appreciate like I can appreciate like the rest and like just yeah, taking mm-hmm. a whole year. But yeah, then there's that part of my brain that kicks in and I'm like, how does that work? Oh, you mean the year of Jubilee? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> Sorry, I read ahead. <laughs> you did. Okay, so the year of Jubilee, I'll get there now, um, is it happened the 50th year. So it would have followed seven Sabbath years. And this was a year to proclaim liberty. We talked about it yesterday. To, pro- to proclaim liberty to those who were servants because of debt. And it was, they were to return land to their former owners. And so the whole concept of this is that if a person had become ill and could not take care of their land, instead of losing it completely, they would say, okay, my fellow Israelite, I will work for you if you will, you know, take my land and cultivate it, you know, keep it up. And then if, if I get better and I can pay it off before the year of Jubilee, I will. If not, I will work for you until that time and then it will be released. What kind of system the Lord had set up for them so that nobody would ever stay in extreme poverty that nobody would ever completely lose their land because the land was never officially theirs. It was always the Lord's. It was sort of borrowed, if you want to say. And so that is why they could return it without there being this real, I guess, attachment to it that there wasn't supposed to be because the land was so key for them because it was their livelihood. It was what would keep them going. And so the Lord always wanted them to have that land in their family. 
But if it wasn't possible to work it, that then after it was given away for so many years, it would be given back. The provision of the Lord is so good, guys. So these laws pertain to how people were to be in relationship with God, but also how they were to be in relationship with one another. It was never that they were taking advantage of one another and that they were looking at those that were less at that time because they were going through a hard time and saying, let me take advantage of you. So this, these chapters 17 through 25, this holiness code, this collection of chapters ends with the Sabbath and Jubilee years so that the land may rest and that there would be a proclamation of liberty to all. And I've already talked about how if they fell on hard times, that their property and their freedom would be restored. So it wasn't just about their property, but it was about them being able to have their livelihood back, to be able to have their freedom back. And so that year of Jubilee serves as that dual, um, it serves that dual purpose. And it really reminds the people that the land belongs to God. And so that they were not to, you know, constantly amass all of this wealth so that other people were suffering and these, uh, you know, like the dichotomy of somebody who has so much wealth that they don't know what to do with it and those that are here suffering because they don't have any money to even own land. It was to be that it came together and that there was equality. And these years would have brought that into this community and into this nation. However, it is yet to be truly celebrated. And that is really sad. Israel had so quickly fallen into the ways of the world that this commandment was never even, it never even saw the first jubilee. And so there wasn't the release of forgiveness. There wasn't the release of debt or of the properties. And so Israel is still looking forward to celebrating fully their first jubilee. But can you imagine what this world would look like if Israel had actually followed God's ways and set this standard, set the example like they were supposed to be doing? Would we have the extreme poverty that we have and the dichotomy of these wealthy people who are constantly gaining more wealth what it would look like today. And that's on a grand scale, but even in our own lives, when the Lord is asking us to do something, even if it seems so small, what it could amount to years or generations down the road. So these things that he established have purpose. They have a 
a way of life that he wanted to see on this earth. And that's why these laws are so important, guys, because he had a way of life that he wanted them to live, to be the example, to be the people that were going to bring in the nations to his understanding of who he was, his character, his nature. And it was through these laws. It was through these 613 ways that they were to change the world. And so I really pray that we don't miss the way that God is calling us to change the world, even if it is through one simple act. You never know what that is going to do for somebody. I read a, I get emails from Todd White, and I don't know how you all feel about him, but it doesn't matter. Um, I like his emails just because it, it edifies my spirit of somebody who is really living out godly principles. And I was reading it this morning, and he was talking about how um, him and this woman who was so against going out and talking to people about the Lord and um, he was like, well, let's just go to lunch. Like, let's, I'm not going to make you talk to anybody. Let's just go to lunch. And then through lunch, he found out that she had been severely hurt by the church, by the Lord. And she wanted really nothing to do with it. And through talking to her, he found out that she enjoyed animals because animals don't hurt you, <laughs> hopefully. Um, they don't talk back, at least. And so um, he was like, well, let's go to this pet store. And, and let's just go in there and look at the pets. And so he said he walked in and he first saw this employee who was like down on the, on like looking at a cage and he like had a word of knowledge that her back was hurting. And he was like, so I went and I prayed for her. Todd, Todd was the one saying he prayed for her and the woman sort of stood back. And, um, and he said that she was healed. And the woman who had been hurt by the Lord was like, are you really for sure that the Lord healed you? She was like constantly asking this woman. And so they walked through the store multiple times praying for people. And they got to this last woman. And um, he said that this, he had another word of knowledge that this woman had migraines. And she was with her son. And so Todd walked up to this woman and was like, hey, do you suffer from migraines? And she was like, yes. She was like, I have one right now. And so he was like, hey, can I pray for you? And through this process, this other woman that was with him started to see how the Lord was working. And she stepped up and started praying for this woman. And through the situation, they finished talking to her and they were like, hey, we want to we wanna pay for your purchase. And they said that the woman started weeping. And they were like, what's the big deal? Like, we're just going to pay for your dog food. And she was like, we had no money. She was like, it was either pay for dog food or buy groceries. And she was like, we were going to, you know, at least take care of the dog, which I'm not going to say is the right thing to do. But anyways. But she was like, now 
we can actually go buy groceries because we have money. And so she said, or they said that later on they got an email back saying that that night this family gave their lives to the Lord because of this situation. We never know what may seem like a simple act to us, but how it may impact the lifetime and generations of a family. And so just like with this year of Sabbath and year of Jubilee, and I'm even going to say Sabbath day, how important it is to have these times away with the Lord. Because if you don't spend time with him, how do you know how to imitate him? Sabbath is not just about, and I'm going to harp on Netflix, it's not just about, well, not just Netflix, but watching TV. Sabbath is to refresh your soul, to refresh your spirit. Now, I'm not saying Netflix is bad. I guess if what you're watching is, I'm going to say it is, but... Find the things that refresh your soul and connect you with the Lord so that you can go out and be set apart. You can be distinct. You can be different. And you can actually be the change that the world is needing. Because as soon as you step off this property... you have the opportunity to come into contact with somebody who has never heard the love of Jesus or felt the love of Jesus. And when we spend time with the Lord, when we understand who he is, when we understand his laws and his ways, we know better how to walk it out when we leave this place. Let's be people who are set apart, who imitate him, who know him so well that we don't miss the opportunities to bring his kingdom here on this earth. And so Lord, we thank you for these festivals. We thank you for these times to be in communion with you, to fellowship with you, to rededicate our lives to you. And I pray that we would take these opportunities to not just celebrate, but to celebrate with a, a purpose. So that we can live out more of who you are. We thank you for the example that you've set for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to, I know it's time to break, but I've got like three more slides for, I've got like, I think it's three more slides for um, 
Leviticus and then we'll be done with Leviticus. So I'm going to go ahead and finish this up and then we'll take a break. Okay. And so I, I know that throughout these two and a half days, we've talked a lot about holiness. We've talked a lot about what it means to be distinct, to be set apart, to be clean. And so I want to talk about, and we've even talked about sacrifices, but I want to ask you, you know, what, what does it look like to live a sacrificial life? And we have some examples from the New Testament. And so if I could get two people to read, one read 12, one of Romans, and then Hebrews 13, 15. So what are these scriptures saying about sacrifice? What about Romans? What does it say? Yeah. What else? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the, that's the Hebrew. But be a living and a holy sacrifice. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for us? Be a living sacrifice. I'm not going to say we're going to know the answer right now, but I pray that it's something that you contemplate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and asking forgiveness for the sin that you've you know, you know, been a part of for the last few years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So 
So looking at these scriptures, and there are more, but these are just two that being a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name, So I'm going to end this book with saying that holiness requires transformation. We have to leave behind our old ways. We have to leave behind the ways of this world so that we can live a holy life that is unto God And so don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn how, or you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let's renew our minds with the truth of who God is constantly. Mark in your Bibles who God is so you can go back again and again and remember so that it can transform your heart, it can transform your mind, and you can leave the ways of the world that is dying because they don't know truth. And that is the book of Leviticus. There you go. Any questions or anything? I know it's not time for questions, but it's time for break. You might want to take a break before. Okay. Um, during the Sabbath, why did that not require a sin offering? Well, I think it was probably because that was a day of rest, and he wanted them to refrain from... I mean, and I think it's more of you reflect on what you are, how it's your relationship with the Lord, and it is that day of atonement that was the main portion of their, like, giving that sin offering. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say because it was more about rest for them on that day to refrain from their work, from... Um, to understand who God was. And hopefully within that, that would impact that day of atonement because they were constantly coming back to who God was each week. And that would sort of set the stage for that week for them to be like, okay, yes, I'm really not in control, but the Lord is. He is sovereign over everything. And so let me live this week unto that. And I don't think that God constantly, I don't think God wants us to constantly be like, oh, I'm so horrible, I'm sorry, God, let me, you know, that's not what he desires. He wants us to be in relationship with him. And if you're constantly in relationship with somebody and you're like, I messed up again, honey, I can't help it, you know, I, you know and you're constantly always doing that, then are you, what are you learning through this process? You know, like, 
when you spend that time with him, you're constantly learning how his ways are, what he is doing. And so I don't think that this is constant like groveling in your in your sin, but the more you spend time with him, the more you're going to know how to live. Oh, 12 too. Okay. So I know that whenever anything wicked in me would like any barrel there would be in poverty. I would think so. If I understand your question correctly. I don't think so, but I'm not, I haven't really studied too in-depthly the <laughs> Exodus 12 um, from now on. This non-believer first non-believer. Let me read a little bit before. Uh, Passover. This is, yeah, the Passover is down here. But Passover is not Tishra. That's Day of Atonement and everything. Yeah. yeah. So um, Passover was in um, April or May. Okay. So that would have been there. Considered their first month, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was talking about how, like, the, um, well, let me go back to, let's see here. Let me, yeah, uh-huh, because that was what we, what I talked about with, um, that when they would sprinkle the frankincense on the, the sheaf of barley, they would wave it. And so when Jesus was raised up from the ground, it was like that wave offering before the Lord of like this is the sacrifice that is the, the greatest fulfillment of this. Um, but other than, um, I think too it would have been like a, a symbolism of like the provision because they're able to, um, with the wave offering, I'm pretty sure that was the first fruits. And so that was like the beginning of the, the harvest. And so it was like, man, look at the provision that the Lord has given us. And so it would have been that um, time of gratefulness and thankfulness to him. Yeah. 
There could be more to that. I'm not saying I'm, yeah, but yeah. So, okay. Well, let's take 15 minutes.